اوكي اهلا وسهلا بجميع حاتحدث بالانجليزي لانه المحاضره حتكون باللغه الانجليزيه ويلكم ايفريون on behalf of the Institute for Palestine Studies and the Isam Faris Institute at AUB I'd like to welcome everyone and thank you for your uh, for your presence here today Each year, the Institute for Palestine Studies organizes the Konstantin Zureik Memorial Lecture in honor of one of its co-founders, Konstantin Zureik, who is, of course, a towering figure here at AUB, in the Arab world at large, and on the international academic scene. His achievements are too numerous to mention in this context, but particularly relevant to today's event is his landmark monograph, Ma'na Nakba, The Meaning of the Catastrophe, or rather the meaning of the Nakba, since that's one of the few words in our vocabulary that have entered the international lexicon. Make of that what you will. Not only did that book coin the very term in Nakba, it helped define an inter entire generation's understanding of and response to the Zionist conquest of Palestine and the dispossession of the Palestinian people. The annual Konstantin Zurekh Memorial Lecture was inaugurated by IPS in 2001 and has been held every year since then, either in Palestine or in Lebanon, each year inviting a distinguished lecturer to speak on a subject of significance to the cause of Palestine and the wider Arab world. Recent lecturers have included Richard Falk, Kamil Mansour, Noor Masalha, Jalal Amin, and Seri Maqdisi, among many others. This year, we're delighted and honored to host Rosemary Sayegh, renowned anthropologist and oral historian who is very well known to several generations of academics who've worked on Palestine and the Palestinians. Rosemary Sayegh's works include the groundbreaking Palestinians from Peasants to Revolutionaries at People's History, first published in 1979 with an introduction by Noam Chomsky, and Too Many Enemies, the Palestinian Experience in Lebanon from 1993. Rosemary Sayegh studied refugees when their lives were not considered a fit topic for academic research. She paid attention to women's lives long before gender was an academic buzzword. This is not to glamorize a career spent carrying out research amidst war, massacres, and hardship, sharing the lives of those on the edge, and making difficult decisions as to where one's personal life ends and one's public obligations begin. Still, against all odds and mostly outside the confines of the academy, she has blazed a trail examining and detailing the lived reality of Palestinian refugees, recording their histories and theorizing about their place in the world as no one else has done. While other academics made lofty pronouncements about subalterns in the proletariat, she shared her life and work with them. Straddling anthropology, sociology, oral history, and political science, she has amassed a body of work that is now considered an indispensable resource in academic research on forced migration and social upheaval. Without her efforts, the early decades of Palestinian dispersal and dispossession would have gone largely unnoticed by the academic community, and a few generations of subsequent work would have been, if not impossible, entirely different. Without her emphasis on recording the experiences of ordinary people and listening to their stories, many other researchers would not have been as bold in following a similar path in studying the situation of Palestinian refugees. 
But Rosemary has not only carved out this territory in academic space, she has also led others by the hand and introduced them to her friends and interlocutors in the refugee camps. Generations of younger scholars who have passed through Lebanon were hosted and welcomed by her with characteristic modesty and self-effacement. Those of us who have been fortunate enough to know her and experience her kindness also know that her tentative manner and humility belie an unbending determination to ensure that the Palestinian narrative is told not just from the top down, but from the bottom up. The title of her lecture today is The Nakba and Oral History. Please join me in welcoming Rosemary. Thank you, and thanks to the Institute of Palestine Studies for inviting me to, to lecture today. I, I like to begin my presentations with a quotation that somehow sets the tone. And this one is from a historian called Doughty, and it's quoted by Ahmed Saadi in um, his book with Laila Abu Logad. And it goes this way, the lament of Arab women on the day that their families left Jauni, Rashpina, to go and settle in the Horan east of the Jordan still rings in my ears today. The men rode on donkeys and the women followed them, weeping bitterly, and the valley was filled with their lamentation. As they went, they stopped to kiss the stones and the earth. So, I've always been impressed by the intensity with which Palestinian, Palestinian children regret the absence of books for them about the history of Palestine. I first began to realize this regret when a 17-year-old girl in Burish Barajni camp told me, our history is unknown, saying this as sadly as if she had been talking about the death of parents. A colleague who taught civic rights to children in Shatila refugee camp for 10 years reported that they often asked her, why are we here? They also complained, why do we have to learn Lebanese history when the Lebanese hate us? Researchers have sometimes asserted that children in camps all know where they come from in Palestine. I think this was certainly true in the past, yet a young camp mother told me recently this generation, if their family hasn't told them about Palestine, they don't know anything. But a missing popular history of Palestine and the Nakba is not a problem only for children, but for adults as well. There are libraries full of specialized studies, but not, nothing written especially for young Palestinians of different ages who want to understand why they don't live in a country called Palestine. Palestinian and Arab scholars in general acclaim the importance of the Nakba as critical moment in the history of Palestine and the Arab East. Constantine Zureik, who first used the term Nakba for 1948, wrote, the defeat of the Arabs in Palestine is neither a mere setback or a simple passing evil. It is a catastrophe, Nakba, in every sense of the word, and a calamity that is greater than any other that has afflicted the Arabs in their long calamity and tragedy written history, ridden, sorry, their calamity-ridden history. Elisanba has written, the contemporary history of the Palestinians turns on a key date, 
1948. That year, a country and a people disappeared from maps and dictionaries. The Palestinian people do, does not exist, said the new masters, and henceforth the Palestinians would be referred to to be general, conveniently vague terms as either refugees or, in the case of a small minority that had managed to escape the generalized expulsion, Israeli Arabs. A long absence was beginning. That's a quote from Sanba. In their book, Nekba, Palestine, 1948, and the Claims of Memory, Abu Lughad and Saadi write, the 1948 war that led to the creation of the State of Israel also resulted in the devastation of Palestinian society. At least 80% of the Palestinians who lived in the major part of Palestine upon which Israel was established, more than 77% of Palestinian territory, became refugees. Their fate hung on the decisions of politicians in the country to which they fled, or bureaucrats in international agencies. The minority of Palestinians, anywhere from 60,000 to 156,000, depending on the sources, who remained behind became nominal citizens of the newly established Jewish state, subject to a separate system of military administration by a government that also confiscated the bulk of their lands. And these authors add to this statement of historic fact, another dealing with the impact of the Nakba on Palestine. Although Palestinians had various forms of identity before 1948, including a sense of themselves as Palestinians, there is little doubt that the catastrophe in its, all its dimensions has not just determined their lives, but has since then become the key site of Palestinian collective memory and national identity. The special character of Palestinian memory lies in the key experience of their radical and abrupt displacement from life in situ, the continuing violence and lack of resolution they must endure, and the political nature of the elaborate erasure of their story, which gives birth to the stubborn dissidence of their memory work. And here is another very forceful expression. The Palestinian Nakba is unsurpassed in history. For a country to be occupied by a foreign minority, emptied almost entirely of its people, its physical and cultural landmarks obliterated, its destruction hailed as a miraculous act of God and a victory for freedom and civilized values, all done according to a premeditated plan meticulously executed, financially and politically supported from abroad, and still maintained today, is no doubt unique. That's Salman Abu Sitti. And there's a version I like because it emphasizes the effect of the Nakba in making resistance a key feature of the Palestinian people's post-1948 history. In the course of the 1948 war and immediate post-Nekba period, the name Palestine was wiped off the map. The rupture of 1948 and the ethnic cleansing of Palestine are central to both the Palestinian society of today and Palestinian social history and collective identity. Resistance to ethnic cleansing and politicized has been a key feature of the modern history of the Palestinians as a people 
and that's Nur Masalha. At this point, I want to emphasize a paradox, one that is the main point of my talk here today. In spite of the acknowledged historic importance of the Nakba, it has been insufficiently researched as experience. Let's remember that the Nakba is not simply a date in history, but, as its name indicates, a national disaster. As such, it has as many versions as the people who were forced to be part of it. In other words, the entire indigenous population of Palestine in 1948, as well as their descendants up to today, whether they became exiles, refugees, internally displaced, or second-class Israeli citizens, their lives, prospects, and identities were radically changed by the expulsions of 1948. Yet, in spite of the Nekba's historic importance, few versions of it as experience have been recorded or published. In 1994 to 95, Salah Abdul Jawad, political science and oral historian at Beirzeit University, presented a project to a Palestinian cultural institute which he called Race Against Time. The project grew out of work Abdul Jawad had been doing as director of Beirzeit's Center for the Study and Documentation of Palestine, Palestinian Society, using oral history to record Palestinian villages demolished during the ethnic cleansing of 1948-9. The Race Against Time was aimed to preserve Palestinian cultural memory, seen as threatened to, to a new degree by the Oslo Accords. Part of the text of, of the proposal runs like this. Supporters of the agreement and opponents of the agreement converge on the dangers of cultural obliteration. Therefore, the preservation of Palestinian culture and history is the most important task, and one we believe should receive priority. In view of the passing on of most of our old people, and in the light of the new political and cultural risks, recording the testimonies of elderly Palestinians who lived Palestinian society before and during the Nakba is a supreme national task. The Race Against Time project was rejected by the Institute to which it had been proposed on the ground of lack of funds. An employee at the Institute concerned explained to me that none of its personnel were trained in oral history. Yet oral history methods are relatively simple and can be taught in a few training sessions. Indeed, oral history work is sometimes integrated into sixth form school curricula to have collected a popular register of Nekpa memories in the 1990s would have been a worthwhile national, cultural and political achievement, particularly in offering support to the right of return. Today, there are still a few people in the age group that remembers the Nekpa. Palestinian filmmaker Rehab Sharida found and filmed a few of them from Saf Saf in Ein Helwe in April this, this year. Uh, that film is, is A Disturbed Earth. I, I, I'm not sure if it's ready to be screened yet. I've seen parts of it. 
maybe with crowdfunding and speeded up training programs, NECBA experiences could still be recorded. Fortunately, individual researchers have stepped in where institutions feared to tread. In the early 1970s, Nafiz Nazal, a student from Georgetown University, who was under the supervision of Hisham Sharabi, came to Lebanon and Syria to collect the testimonies of more than 100 refugees from 32 Galilean towns and villages, representing about 14% of total Palestinian villages and 40% of Galilee's population. Nizar's study was published in 1978 by the Institute of Palestine Studies under the title The, Palestine, sorry, the Palestinian Exodus from Galilee, 1948. Rashid Khalidi writes in a foreword to, to this book that it provides irrefutable evidence that the foundation of the State of Israel was accompanied by, and indeed conditional upon, the wholesale expulsion of the Palestinian Arab majority of the population from their homes and property. Unfortunately, Nazar's study did not find its way into most American university courses on the Middle East and has by now become expensive and difficult to obtain. I actually wrote to about six colleagues of mine who teach in, in the United States uh, and, and they all said they knew the book but that they hardly use it anymore because it's not easy to obtain. Between 2002 and 2006, Diana Allen and Mahmoud Zaydan put together a voice and video archive that contains over 650 speakers from more than 150 Palestinian villages and towns. All of the speakers were resident in Lebanon, which means that only a relatively small segment of the diaspora is represented, but nonetheless, of course, it's a, it's, a, it's a very important archive. Alan and Zaydan made attempts to extend their recording project outside Lebanon, but failed to find financial support. It is possible, however, that other oral history recording collections exist. I know of one in Burija Shemali camp near Tyre, where expulsees come from the villages of Akka, Haifa, Nazareth, Tiberias, and Suffered. The AUB Library Archive holds another set of oral histories besides the Allen and Zaydan collection, made by the NGO Aljana to commemorate the Nakba's 60th anniversary. The Ibrahim Abulogad Institute uh, Library at Berzeit University has a collection that includes records made with fighters from 1936 and 1948. In other words, I think that there are probably here and there uh, small collections of oral history recordings that could be collected and maybe centralised. Although centralisation is not always a good solution. It's really curious that a few years back when I was preparing <coughs> an oral history course at the AUB, Google had information about an Arab oral history museum in Shafa Amr. Shafa Amr is in northern Galilee. And um, it was being run by an Arab woman with great enthusiasm. I looked it up yesterday to see what had happened to it and I found it had been completely erased and there was only information 
about um, Israeli, Jewish Israeli museums. It would be interesting to find out what has happened to the Shafar Amr Museum. I'm, I suspect it's a case of memoricide. In the West Bank, Sonia Nimmer, herself a trained oral historian, worked with school children to record oral histories of villages when she was briefly Minister of Culture with the National Authority. There are likely to be other collections elsewhere. The Palestinian community of Iraq, formed in 1948 when residents of Mount Karmel and Haifa decided to accompany the Iraqi army units as they withdrew from Palestine, may well have recorded a community history. Uh, and I note there that very little is written, uh, has been written about Palestinians in Iraq beyond one study in Shu'un Palestinian. Though we constantly speak about the Nakba, we are actually very ignorant of its details. This was underlined for me by the recent discovery of a group of Palestinians living in the Sharkiya governorate in Egypt who came there from Beersheba on camels in 1948 and who had not figured on any official lists. They were discovered by a journalist and written about in an article in 2015. While doing a comparative study of Nekba memories across three generations, uh, uh, three refugee generations in Syria in 2008, the sociologist Anahid al-Hardan came upon survivors of Palestinian refugees who had been caught in Wadi al-Rakad, Wadi al-Rakad, in the Golan Heights in the savage winter of 1948-9. She writes, quote, Memories of death were related to me through a colloquial expression literally meaning the world died in Wadi al-Rakad during what historians have noted was a particularly hard winter, the freezing winter of 1948-49. During that winter, the Palestinians dispossessed during their Zionist onslaught had been made refugees overnight. Those who made it to the Golan on foot also became homeless in a colder environment without adequate food, clothing or shelter. The world died in Wadi al-Rakad, I was told, by three different guardians who all hailed, who all hailed from the adjacent sub-district of Safad and Tiberias. Um, Al-Hardan uses the word guardian to indicate the first generation of refugees those with first-hand memories of Palestine. She recorded the reminiscence, reminiscences of survivors. One of them, Abu Subhi, said, by God, the lice ate people's hair. The lice, the lice. When we first fled in 1948, they put us in Wadi al-Teen. It seems to be a local name for Wadi al-Rakad. Many people died from the severe weather and the dirt and the cold and hunger. There were no health services at all. Old and young died. There was no water, no firewood. There were no services at all. The people died. I swear to you, look, they couldn't keep up with burying the dead during the day, given how many people died. The point I want to emphasize is this. Dr. Al-Hardan's research in Syria took place 
only a few years ago in 2008, 60 years after the Nekpa, and her purpose was not to record Nekpa stories, but to compare Nekpa memories between the first, second, and third generations of refugees. It seems very possible that what happened to people in Wadi al-Rakat or Wadi al-Teen in the winter of 1949 had never been recorded before. One would have to go through the Red Cross records in Geneva to be sure of that. But the emphasis put by the survivors on the complete absence of any kind of humanitarian aid makes it likely that no official record exists of this particular Palestinian <coughs> refugee community. The concreteness and detail of the oral descriptions offered by the survivors from Wadi al-Rakat contrast with the emptiness of official records. Other such extreme experiences of the Nekba have quite possibly gone unrecorded. It's worth considering, for example, whether two of Ghassan Kanafani's novellas, Men in the Sun and All That Is Left to You, that describe Palestinian men traversing a burning desert are actually based on real stories. I regret now that I did not make more effort to record Nekpa stories, but when I was doing oral history work, first with people in, in Burish al-Barajni camp and then later with Shatila people, I was actually more interested in their, in their experiences and lives <coughs> in Lebanon and Lebanon as refugees. However, my first book, Palestinians from Peasants to Revolutionaries, does contain some memories of the exodus from Palestine and arrival in Lebanon. Im Hussein, who hosted me in Burish camp, remembered as a child of 12, creeping back at night through enemy lines to the family home in Kwekat to bring back flour. Finally, they were expelled. She said, we didn't have money to rent from the Druzes. It was summer and we slept on the ground. When the winter came, we rented a very small room, three meters by two. We stayed the whole winter in Abu Snan and then in March, the Israelis started pressing on the refugees. We were refugees in our own country to leave. They came at five o'clock at night, surrounded the village and started looking at ID cards. If anyone was a refugee, they told him to fetch his family and get into the trucks. We weren't allowed to take anything with us. They filled nine big trucks and then they took us and threw us over the border on the Merj al-Amr road. M. Hussein continued, we stayed in Nablus for 15 days, then my father got us permits to go to Amman. The Jordanian police stopped us on Allenbury Bridge and they said our papers weren't right. They made us sleep on the ground near the bridge. It was March. And if a woman hadn't got bread for her children, they'd die of hunger. My father went back to Nablus to fix the permits. Then we went on to a man. At Erbed Crossroads, it started raining. Then the police post at Ramtha wanted to send us back to a man because they said our papers weren't right. I remember that one of the women who was with us jumped out of the truck in the rain and the mud and she cursed the police and all the Arabs. She was so mad that she got hold of her nine-month-old grandson. His father was dead and all, almost threw him at the police, police post, screaming, you sons of pimps, 
Are we Jews? We're Arabs. The people of Elbasa had friendly relations with nearby Jewish settlements and had been assured that if fighting broke out, they would not be harmed. But on May 14th, Elbasa was emptied, uh, sorry, occupied by the I, uh, JDF. A uh, survivor told what happened. The day the village fell, Jewish soldiers ordered all those who remained in the village to gather in the church. They took a few young people outside the church and shot them dead. Soon they ordered us to bury them. As villagers were forced to flee, IDF units along the road robbed them of money and jewellery. The worst of Zionist war crimes was probably the death march from Lid and Ramli, in which all the inhabitants of these two towns were forced to leave eastwards, up the mountain road to Ramallah. I mean, absolutely no one was allowed to stay, neither young people nor old people. Many, it was midsummer, July, and many of them died of thirst or exhaustion on the way. A woman who I recorded in Yaffa recalled taking part in that march, pregnant and with a two-year-old daughter. The daughter died soon after arriving in Ramallah, but the woman and her unborn child survived. The expulsion order was signed by Yitzhak Rabin, later twice Prime Minister of Israel. The Zionist forces used their air power acquired late in the battle to good effect. But from what people told me, it seems that fear of rape was a more potent force than fear of aerial bombardment in causing flight. A man from Sa'asa said, my village, Sa'asa, didn't leave because of a battle. There was fighting around, there were air raids and bombardments, but the reason we left was the news of the massacre of Safsaf, where 50 young men were killed. There were other massacres, Jish, Der Yassin, and there were stories of attacks on women's honour. Our villagers were especially concerned to protect their women, and because of this fear, Many of the northern villages evacuated even before the war reached them. A friend in Shatila, Imis Ma'in, was 40 years old in 1948. Her family were from, were from Shafzaf. She told me how, as the battle got closer, her father took her out to a field and was about to shoot her as a protection against rape. It was prevented by a, a cousin who, who promised to marry her. Nekba suffering didn't end when the expulsees crossed the borders into the host countries. Recording with re refugees in the early 1970s, I heard how in that first winter after the war, a boy in a camp that had been set up in the Bekaa, who needed to go to the toilet in the night, was found in the morning frozen to death. Apparently this was not an isolated occurrence. A community leader describing the distribution of the refugees by the Lebanese authorities in 48 recalls, we were pe people from 60 different villages and we insisted that we should all be moved together. But they distributed us, some to Ain Helwi, some to North Bekaa, some to Anjar and Karaun. The 60 villages refused to be separated so the police beat our old people and fired into the air to frighten us and force us to get into the trucks. They beat us with sticks and rifle butts. 
our fate was to go to the barracks of Karaon. We found some of our kin from Safariya already settled there. They told us that many had died that winter because the snow reached a metre or more. Provisions from Zahali had been cut off. There had also been fighting between them and the neighbouring villages when they'd gone out in the snow looking for a mouthful of bread. I want to say uh, a few words at this point about oral history, its origins, and what kinds of research work it is particularly suited to. In, in Europe in the West, oral history was a rebellion within history writing that developed in the early 20th century. It was a rebellion against the classicist German historians like von Ranke, who maintained that only written documents could be counted as basis for history writing. However, while saying this, I want to remind you that oral history was and is practiced in many parts of the world. For example, in Africa by the griots, who transfer verbally over generations the histories of leaders and elites, and by indigenous Australians, who have transmitted orally knowledge of a rise in sea level that had occurred more than 7,000 years ago. Amazing, I think. Paul Thompson, the founder of oral history in Britain, defined it in this way. Oral history is not necessarily an instrument for change. It depends on the spirit in which it is used. Nevertheless, oral history can be a means for transforming both the content and the purpose of history. It can be used to change the focus of history, to open up new areas of inquiry. It can break down barriers between teachers and students, between generations, between educational institutions and the world outside. And in the writing of history, whether in books or museums or radio or film, it can give back to the people who made and experienced history through their own words, a central place. Thompson himself researched a history of early Edwardian England using interviews with domestic workers, farmhands, and laborers, as well as some of the elite. And since then, oral history has been taken up by feminists, by transgender people, used to research with prisoners, migrants, refugees, and armies, and also, incidentally, the Palestinian police force. Uh, that's a collection held in St. Anthony's, Oxford, made, I think, under the direction of Eugene Rogan. One of the most famous examples of oral history is Ronald Fraser's Blood of Spain, the experience of civil war, 1936 to 1939, first published in 1979. Fraser's words about oral history written in the foreword give us a landmark definition of what oral history does and does not do. He writes, the appearance of a book on the Spanish Civil War of 1936-9 today requires some explanation. Major historical works over the past 15 years or so have charted most of the features of that conflict and it would be vain to hope to add anything new to the overall map of the period. But within the general and even detailed knowledge, one area has remained unarticulated, the subjective, a spectrum of the lived experiences of people who participated in the events. This 
is the purpose of the present book. Oral history, as conceived here, is an attempt to reveal the intangible atmosphere of events, to discover the outlook and motivations of the participants, willing or unwilling, to describe what civil war, revolution and counter-revolution felt like from inside both camps. This book is rooted, therefore, in the, palace, in the, sorry, in the Spanish experience. <laughs> Never more than at a time of extreme social crisis does the atmosphere become a determining factor in the way people respond to events. For however intangible, it is never abstract or dis distant. It is what people feel, and what people feel lays the ground for their actions. How am I doing time-wise? You're fine. How, how much more? As, as much as you want. <laughs> well, you can give me a clue if you want me to stop. Um, just a bit more about Blood of Spain, which is, 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 is a real model of, um, an eminent model of oral history work. Uh, a journalist called Julian Casanova makes a useful point when he was writing Fraser's obituary. He said his 1979 book, Blood of Spain, was the first guide to uncovering the hidden stories of the Spanish Civil War. It contained the opinions of ordinary men and women, of the war's winners and losers, which really show up in historical documents. So hidden stories and ordinary men and women, these are two basic themes of oral history. The development of oral history has been closely associated with marginality of all kinds, of race, class, status, gender, and sexual orientation. I take it as an illustrative example, a scholar of mixed Canadian and Japanese birth who undertook oral history research with her community in Canada. Kirsten McAllister, rebuilding historically persecuted communities. <coughs> As you know, Canadians of Japanese descent were dis interned during World War II, as they were also in the United States. McAllister writes, for historically persecuted groups, testimonials can play an essential role in rebuilding their communities. To testify in a community venue, it is necessary, for example, to reconstitute, recollect, and re or reinvent community values, shared modes of speech and frames of reference. Like many other Japanese Canadians concerned with social justice, my work has been inspired and informed by the work of indigenous leaders, elders, scholars and artists. It has also immersed me in the material and psychic devastation of the internment camps, tracing the damage as it has unraveled across generations. Uh, including my own body and psyche. This memory work has focused on how this history has reached into the present and kept a suffocating hold over the community. Uh, that's something for us to think about. I think you know that the Nekba is, is, is not a past event, but an ongoing event that continues to affect those who suffered from it. 
The realization that the province had different landscapes of memory, many of which were buried, drew me towards the problem of memory, excavating these histories for me as someone who grew up in this province allowed me to make sense of an unspoken tension and anxiety about the presence of Japanese Canadians in this province, along with indigenous people and, and other migrants, troubled memories in the bodies and landscapes of the province that were disturbing and powerful, memories that were not written about in history books available when I was a child in school. So here we have other themes of oral history, troubled memories and memories that were not written about in history books. Another classic of oral history is Sean Field's study of black workers in South Africa who were forcibly displaced. It uses oral history methodology to record stories of people who experienced the brunt of racist forced removals in the city of Cape Town and traces the human impact of this disruptive, often violent feature of apartheid social engineering. Uh, another classic uh, oral history um, recording, Angley Duel's Stories by Karen Flick and Heather Goodall, uh, examines the use of, of a CD-ROM, hypermedia, in offering resources to a native Australian community in quest of its own history and home after forced displacement. The particular group of Australians whom Flick and Goodall worked with were Murrays, who had been uprooted from their homes in northwest Australia in 1936. Uh, I'm sure you know that uh, indigenous Australians were forcibly moved to a very large extent, almost all of them, to make room for western sheep farming, mainly English, sheep farming farms. And one of the main values for those Murray participants was to make contact with or recover knowledge of cousins and grandparents whom, whom they had lost sight of during the forced removal process. Using visual media meant that participants were not limited by educational level. Oral history can also be used to bring about social and cultural change. There is a classic case carried out by Daniel Kerr, a relative of AUB President Malcolm Kerr. In this study, Daniel Kerr reversed the conventional format of social research, which defines researchers actively as the analysts and the research community passively as the analyzed. In his 203 study, We Know What the Problem Is, Kerr demonstrates how he, as a researcher, worked with homeless people in Cleveland, the US, using audio and radio interviews to mobilize the homeless to create their own solutions to their problem, such as improved conditions in shelters and drop-in centers. Yeah, it's an unusual example, but I think uh, a, a very... Um, <coughs> Uh, good one for commun marginal communities that want to change their situation. Museums have a long tradition of transferring knowledge of historic periods and indigenous cultures through exhibitions of material culture and textual information. 
In some museums of oral history recordings have been <coughs> sorry, in some museums oral history recordings have been added to give more personal and subjective information. This is the case in District 6 Museum in Cape Town, South, South Africa, where oral history records offer visitors personal stories from the era of forced displacement. A colleague at District 6 who, who has visited uh, Lebanon writes that there is work being done in Cape Town to start a Palestine, Palestine and Human Rights Museum, and maybe this would include oral history. In Santiago, Chile, there's a memory of a museum of memory and human rights which uses oral history and other media to commemorate the victims under the Pinochet dictatorship. All these, I think, are models for us. In some countries, oppressed minorities, such as black Americans and people of original native descent, have set up their own museums, while in others, museums are legally bound to represent ethnic minorities. It is not clear yet whether the recently established Palestine Museum in Ramallah will contain oral history material. A social institute and archive based in London but working globally, PANOS, has used oral history to criticise unthinking capitalist industrial development in the third world. Edited by Hugo Slim and Paul Thompson, Listening for a Change, a book they published, emphasises the importance of putting people ahead of development planning. Far from being ignorant, an indigenous Canadian group, the Dean, have an environmental knowledge that has enabled them to utilise the natural resources of their local environment in an ecological, sustainable manner. Groups such as the Dean are increasingly demanding direct participation in research and development projects in their region. In the Sahel of North Africa, an oral history project was set up to complement or, if necessary, correct the expertise of donor agencies by focusing on indigenous knowledge. These cases are valuable in pointing out routes to development that are not taken in a headlong rush for modernity. And I remember a case actually somewhat similar here in Beirut. Uh, you know, when you drive to the airport, at a certain point you go through high concrete walls which completely blocked the view on either side. And I remember the people who had, before that, been able to see right to the sea, complained, but were not able to do anything to change it. I don't su suggest that there would be a mass reading public for Nekba stories based on recording individual experiences, but the knowledge these stories convey do penetrate the academic sphere and may even have a wider readership. For example, the Palestinian scholar Ruba Saleh writes concerning her mother Selwa Salim's autobiography, Wind in My Air. She says, I can tell you that my mother's memoir, which is an oral history book dictated and then written down as almost a diary of her life, made a tremendous impact in Italy and in other countries. She starts the narration with the Nekba, or actually with stories from the British Mandate and her father impri imprisoned by the British. 
The book was reprinted five times and it is used in secondary schools widely and cited as a reference for people who want to know more about Palestine, about women, about migration and displacement. So, Robert says, I think the short answer is that oral history does have an impact. However, it should not remain in the academic context only to produce such impact, but circulate, circulate to wider audiences and be accessible. And that's a, a really big problem, the problem of dissemination, because it's relatively simple uh, to set up recording projects and set up archives, but to, 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 to disseminate those archives in, in, in an acceptable manner to people in the world at large is a far harder thing to do. Far more necessary if one wants to change opinions. Finally, it's my contention that oral histories of their past would be a valuable educational adjunct to the school programs to which the majority of Palestinian children are subjected. There is much to be learned in the stories of their parents and grandparents. For example, how did the first generation of expulsees manage to remain Palestinian while adapting sufficiently to host country regimes to survive? Noor Salha puts this question like this. Popular storytelling and oral history were deployed in the post-1948 period by the Palestinian refugees and internally displaced communities as an emergency science and a liberating experience. Individual accounts of struggle and revolt, displacement and exodus, survival and heroism served a buffer served as a buffer against national disappearance. Narrative histories, memory and oral history have become a key genre of Palestinian historiography, a sub-discipline whose function is to guard against the disappearance from history of the Palestinian people. And the main issue I would like to leave with you for discussion, has the Nekba been sufficiently researched, written about, talked about, commemorated. In an examination of the six main textbooks about the Middle East used at first year university level, uh, Dr. Hadi Burhani finds that, quote, the relevant lit literature explored on Western support of Israel shows no sign of tackling the subject through an empirical historical analysis of the Palestine-Israel question. <coughs> this area, like other areas of the Western treatment of Israel, is a platform for pro-Israeli views and bias. It's a very interesting article uh, and I would have liked to have quoted more from it, but um, I really recommend it to you. <coughs> Uh, as, as accounting to a large extent of how even academic textbooks very often um, reproduce really the, the Israeli version of what has happened uh, since 48 or before. Yeah, I suggest that a more accurate knowledge of the Nekba could, if sufficiently distributed, take the edge off this bias. Nur Masalha notes, and this is the final paragraph, I think. Nur Masalha notes that in contrast to the Israeli National Memorial at Yad Vashem and other Holocaust museums, 
including the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial and the museum in Oswiecim, Poland, and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And there's not just one in Washington. There are, I forget how many, but dozens of Holocaust museums in the United States. Um, there is no NECPA museum, no NECPA Hall of Fame names, no central database of NECPA victims' names, no tombstones or monuments to mark the hundreds of Palestinian villages ethnically cleansed and destroyed in 1948. So Masalha proposes, as a counter to memoricide, that the he proposes the institutionalization of a People's Nakba Memorial Day as a worldwide event to protect Nakba mem memory against its denial in Israel and around the world and to force the Palestinian leadership to relocate the right of return to the center of peacemaking in the Middle East. That's the end. <laughs> So Rosemary's told me she doesn't mind if uh, there are any questions uh, to respond to a few of them, at least. As usual, I think she's issued a call to action to all of us, not least to us at the Institute for Palestine Studies, to do much more in this regard, to do much more on the uh, in, re in terms of research on oral history, and at the very least to reissue uh, the book by Nefes Nazel, uh, The Exodus from the Galilee, uh, which uh, could at least be issued as an as a, um, e-book. For those of you who don't know it, it's a really uh, mind-opening read, and, uh, and it's actually a kind of, it almost reads like a novel, because the, the testimonies and stories are um, mm. extremely captivating. Uh, it's also a call to action to all of you young, younger scholars uh, to uh, engage in oral history, especially since Rosemary tells us it doesn't require too much preparation or expertise, although it does require, I think, a fair degree of discipline and uh, a certain amount of background, uh, but I don't think it, it requires too much extensive training. So, so sh she's left us with, uh, with a lot to do. Um, but if there are any questions, maybe we'll take just a few. Uh, Could I borrow a pen? Yes. Thanks. Uh, Sari? Do you need it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rosemary. Just to, re just to remind you, the first contact between us, I was a director of uh, Palestinian Center for Refugees <coughs> and Diaspora in Ramallah, and I, I send you some theoretical questions, and you end your email, stop that, just go and collect oral history. So go to action. <laughs> just, uh, just to, uh, to remind. Well, uh, oral history really become extremely important that, that in the last uh, 20 years, IOM is taking it as a legal uh, evidence for land uh, 
uh, and property uh, claims in Europe, etc. So, but in the same time, uh, there is awareness more and more that that um, the the individual memory is also can be manipulated by collective memory. Just I uh, I remember. Uh, I read the book of uh, Nazal maybe 20 years ago, and uh, I, I remember that he collected from some refugees that um, uh, they heard a call, they uh, the, the Arab radio uh, uh, called them to come, uh, to leave their places, and to go to, uh, to the uh, neighboring countries. Uh, so, uh, so uh, this is, uh, and later on it was a debate. I remember Adil Manna, for instance, say, no, this is absolutely not true, and, uh, and they verify the, the radios, uh, etc. There is no call. So, it means that, so, so my question here, it comes, uh, how, how, how would you work? Uh, authenticity, reliability of oral histories, how, uh, what kind of intersection between written history and oral history you think? Shall I answer them one by one or wait till get everybody? Maybe one by one. Yeah, um, I don't think, I mean, I've been working with Nafis Nazal's book quite intensively over the last few days and I don't think that he actually reports anybody saying that they left Palestine because of uh, orders from the leaders. Uh, I know that this was a great concern of, of Dr. Walid Khalidis and uh, I, of course I've read his uh, uh, article about that, how he and Erskine Childress went through all the radio broadcasts of that period and didn't find a single order of that kind. Um, the, the broader question really is, uh, obviously, oral history is not infallible. I mean, any more than you would believe uh, anything that you hear 100%, you, if it's about a fact that concerns you, you check it out. And oral histories have to be checked against other evidence. But they still, um, I mean, that doesn't, the, the fact that people can, can, can lie that they can misrepresent, that they can exaggerate, that they can um, forget. All things are there as part of the problematic of, of oral history. You know, I, perhaps I oversimplified in, 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 in what I was saying today. It isn't at all, I mean, I think it's simple to train people to do oral history. All the problems come afterwards in thinking, what have you actually done, you know? If that answers your question. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Thank you very much. Um, uh, so in, uh, the Nakba the, the, uh, the is, uh, is engraved obviously in our uh, consciousness and uh, uh, and uh, uh, the oral history helps keep that conscience uh, aware and uh, deepened and all of that. Uh, uh, my question concerns the devastations that has since uh, take, uh, followed um, the in, in Palestine, 
the devastation of the uh, the idea of Palestine, the the possibility of liberation, and all of that, but also the devastation that have uh, befallen the whole region, um, the nakabat al the very closely Syria, for example. Um, uh, there, those. Um, uh, what has followed the Nakba, whether in Palestine um, uh, or in the region, has also um, given rise to its own oral history. Um, most recently, perhaps, using the shorter text, uh, um, using the image, using the video, but expressed by the people themselves. They're not waiting for oral historians to come uh, and document. They're out on social media stating uh, an experience, stating a memory, stating a, um, a, um, a, uh, a morality and all of that. How do you um, see these two uh, dimensions in their historicity, in their historical development relating? Uh, with you having worked on this for, uh, for, a, for a long time, uh, how do you connect with these uh, uh, kind of ongoing Nakbas and new Nakbas and their new oral histories? Well, I think uh, it's perfectly possible for two or more methods of doing oral, oral history to coexist. They don't necessarily, we don't necessarily have to have one, you know, uh, eliminating the other. And I, 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 for instance, if I were young enough to do uh, another oral history project, I would perhaps go to one of the camps that hasn't been so studied, like uh, maybe <coughs> Jalil or somewhere quite far away, and work with young, uh, young adults who are or perhaps already, uh, it, well, for sure using cell phones and much better at it than me, and maybe work with them to... I think histories of each camp actually would be a, be a very interesting project and I one time thought of trying to train uh, teams from each camp in Dublin to do histories of the camps because each one has a quite different history. The origins of people who uh, live in them are different, the, the, the journey they had from Palestine different, the, the surrounding environment is different, sometimes it's been hostile, sometimes it's been friendly and there have been battles, and as we know. And so all this makes uh, something that I think should be recorded, and I would certainly have wanted to work with... Uh, I have indeed actually worked with uh, young researchers in one camp, Burish Brajni, but the things they wanted to research were things like aadatu taqalid, and uh, food, in, in particular villages in, in Palestine. And I wanted them to do what they wanted to do. But, you know, if I'd been able to go on with them, I would have perhaps pushed them towards doing uh, histories of, of, of camps and broadened the program out. But there isn't really a teaching institute for oral history that could take on a big task like that. And the sh I wish there was. Maya? <laughs> uh,
Thank you, Rosemary. That was really lovely. I just wanted to let you know that there is an ACMA Museum being opened in Washington, D.C. So, sorry? Uh, there is a NACMA Museum being currently constructed and opened in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C.? Yes. Has it got anything in it yet? Uh, not, well, it's, the, the project is, is, being, is in process. Yeah, I did read about it. Some individual, isn't it? It's an individual project. You you can Google it, and uh, I, I, the guy uh, whose name I've forgotten said that he walked down uh, the mall in Washington and. Found every every everything had a museum except <laughs> Palestine, so we decided to set that up. There's a question in the back. Um, thank you a lot. Uh, I would like to introduce myself first. Um, I work in NGO called Shark, and uh, a big part of our work is uh, oral histories, but for Syrians. But we focus pre uh, pre the crisis, 2011. Um, I would like to ask you because our library uh, it's online, and and we have. Um, like we have uh, recorded interviews, only only sound, and another part is videos. So as oral historian, I would like to know, um, would it affect uh, the distribution or the interest of people if, if it's videotaped or if uh, it's only audio? And as you know, like with funds, <laughs> it's more with, with audio, and uh, we try to manage our budget to cover both. But how would it affect, uh, like, like ha what's the difference between uh, having uh, these two? And thank you. I don't know if I really heard all your question, but I mean, it, um, I'll try and answer what I understood from it. I think that video recordings, uh, 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 video and audio together, are much more valuable than audio alone, because the body itself is tremendously expressive, and all that, you know, the expressions of the face, the gestures of the hands, are lost in, 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 in an audio, audio recording. And Diana Allen has written very um, well about this, how much the body shows and how, how this is part, you know, of what they're trying to tell. Is that what you...? Yes. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I, I wanted to ask about like two contradictory impulses that I sensed in your talk. So one is about the centralization of the the collections that you talked about. For example, the, the Shafa Amr Museum that had a centralized collection. And then uh, the impulse for dissemination and distribution for, so to create, to facilitate the access for, uh, to those collections for such, so that we can build uh, narratives on top of them. Uh, I, to me, those two impulses seem contradictory uh, because if if, uh, if you centralize, then you're losing the diversity that allows for a wider network of access. Uh, maybe I'd like to hear your thoughts on this comment. When uh, Saleh Abdul Jawad uh, made his proposal, Race Against Time, the recordings, you know, with Palestinians who could remember before the Nakba and the Nakba. Uh, he proposed that there should be, from the beginning, two copies of everything 
one to be kept inside occupied Palestine and one to be kept outside occupied Palestine. And I mean, I, I think that, that that's just common sense that one would would realize that, let's say, putting things in Ramallah, in the museum in Ramallah, would not be safe enough. And that, you know, there should always be copies somewhere else. And I, I, I don't understand the technology of it, but I think there are ways of putting things up there somewhere. <laughs> in the clouds. <laughs> in the clouds, yes. Which preserve them undestroyably. I, I just have a comment and not a I just have a comment, not a question, and it's just that uh, uh, theater should play a very big role in uh, oral history. Uh, theater. Theater. theater? Yeah, in oral history, because as we've um, seen recently, for example, I mean, I know it's only one story of each, but uh, it is a process that we are planning to also take on to start re, um, uh, reintroducing the oral, I mean, bringing the stories from uh, the Nakba period to, uh, you know, to a wide audience. And I, you know, it's just a small uh, role, but it it's no, it's could be effective. Idea, yeah. yeah. And an early book on oral history actually had an example of that. I think they'd, they'd been recordings with immigrant women in New Jersey in the United States, and out of those recordings they made plays, because the stories, I mean, I'm sure that you as a, a, a dramatist person would, would, would uh, be able to make, make plays from Nakba stories. In fact, uh, I think Aljana has uh, done something in that direction with a book for children. Yeah, uh, we have a play tomorrow that's based on a, on a, a Palestinian woman uh, uh, who uh, who lived who who left Palestine in 1948. She was just born; she was a baby. But it was it's about her life in Beirut, Yani. But um, uh, that's playing at Mono tomorrow night for promote at 8:30. Mono, no, it's a it's mono theater. Uh, it's called Ayubi, uh, the play. <laughs> little little plug for uh, Ali's play. Recently, I saw two museums about Armenians, uh, Armenians uh, catastrophe in Lebanon, and I don't know if you people have seen it. The one. In and the one counted, yes. Uh, Films. things people go to them when they came from Armenia to Lebanon. I mean, it was very professional, well done. And Let's learn from the Armenians. <laughs> it's like I mean, yeah. Sorry, may exhibitions or films? No, no. It's it's a it's a museum. museum. There are two museums in Lebanon. I mean, first class about Armenians who came to Lebanon. What they brought with them, their stories, the way they are displayed is amazing. Just amazing. Wahad Biblos, Wahad Antilias. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And and they they also commercial. Uh, commer I mean, uh, the people who died. I mean, they have monuments about the people who died, and just excellent.
Excellent. We should do that. Okay, uh, if there are no further questions, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. Um, I wanted to uh, thank uh, the uh, Islam Ferris Institute for hosting this event, and of course, uh, the Institute for Palestine Studies, and especially two people, um, research fellow Perla Isa, who was instrumental in organizing the lecture, and uh, also executive, to the re executive assistant to the research committee, Hiba Abu Ghaida, who also uh, arranged a lot of the logistics. Um, I also wanted to mention an event next week on the 70th anniversary of Nakba on May 15th at, uh, that's Tuesday, at six o'clock. Uh, IPS is organizing a book launch uh, in partnership with Dar al-Nimr uh, on the book in the land of my birth a Palestinian boyhood by Rajai Busayla and the book uh, recounts the coming of age of a blind Palestinian boy uh, of modest circumstances during the turbulent years leading up to the fall of Palestine in 1948 so it's a memoir uh, of a young boy growing up blind in Palestine and uh, it'll also include um, a talk or uh, three talks uh, there'll be uh, the, uh, the author uh, will have a pre-recorded video message and live interventions by Elias Khouri, uh, Joe Hello, and Leila Atshan. So that's on Tuesday at Dar al-Nimr uh, on May 15th. That's the 70th anniversary of Nakba. Oh, sorry. Six o'clock, six to seven thirty. Okay. So thank you very much for being here. And thank you very much.